If I were to ask you the question this morning, how many of you think God loves you, I'm almost certain that almost every one of you would say, I do. But if I were to rephrase that question this morning and ask you, how many of you think God likes you, then you may answer that question differently. And the problem is, if you struggle to wonder if God likes you, you will struggle to enter into his presence with confidence. You will cower as you enter. You will uh, hesitantly come to him, not wholeheartedly come to him. Uh, You will wonder, does he even want you there? Yet here in Hebrews 10, as Bill has read, uh, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ. Before we can dive in today, I must kind of make you aware of some words that are unfamiliar to us today. They were quite familiar with the uh, folks reading Hebrews because they were Jews, thus the name of the book, Hebrews. But to us, these words are unfamiliar. We don't quite understand them. They're out of our context, uh, and here they are. You may have heard them Earlier, if not, let me share them with you again. Holy places, blood, um, curtain, priest, and house of God. All right, so we have confidence to enter the holy places. What are the holy places? Uh, The holy place refers to the holy of holies. It was this place where God's glory dwelt that once a year, only once a year, could the high priest go on the Day of Atonement and make atonement for the sins of the people. He went in there in great trepidation and fear uh, that all of his sins be covered. Otherwise, if they were not, he would die. So he entered the Holy of Holies Once a year. That's what holy place means. He took the blood of a lamb and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the ark of the covenant as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the people who waited outside as he entered this holy place. Uh, By the new and living way, That word new, you can't see it in the English. It only occurs one time in the entire New Testament, this word for new, and it means literally a fresh sacrifice. Uh, What would that mean? Well, in temple life, it was a fresh sacrifice. Here, it refers to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because only It can only refer to that because in the temple era, when that sacrifice was made, that lamb died, never to come to life again. Uh, Jesus died three days later, rose from the dead, and so he can be referred to as a new, a fresh sacrifice, but also a living way. That he opened for us through the curtain. What is the curtain? 
The holy place was separated from the rest of the temple by a nine-inch thick curtain. Imagine, nine inches thick curtain. But here the writer says that curtain is the very flesh of Jesus. How? As hard as it is for you and I to comprehend this, you've got to hang with me on this. As hard as it is for you and I to get this in our minds, Jesus' body, while he was here on this earth, was a major, a major inhibitor of the grand purpose of God. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Uh, Jesus performed miracles. He raised the dead. He dared touch the leper when nobody else would touch them. Jesus loved on the unlovable. Jesus did the unthinkable things. But if he had continued to do those things, if he had continued to do those things and go up in years and not die at an early age, at the age of of around 33, you and I would be forever lost. His flesh was a curtain that held back the ultimate plan of God. In order for the ultimate plan of God to happen, Jesus had to die. What should this teach us, especially this week? We do not understand fully how God is unfolding things. We don't. If you were one of Jesus' disciples who had seen him do all of those things and you find yourself then, uh, as Peter did at the trial or as John did at the cross, and you push rewind in your mind and you consider the people he healed, the lives he touched, those he embraced that no one else embraced, you are standing there thinking, why? Why is Jesus dying on the cross? Because your uh, inability is to see beyond the cross. You can't see the point in the suffering. Very few people see it while it's happening. Very few. Sometimes we get glimpses past the time of suffering of why we have suffered. Sometimes we will never see it until we're with him in heaven. And certainly the disciples didn't get it. When Jesus died, they fled. They ran scared. They had no clue, though he had tried to tell them time and again, this is why I have to die. They didn't know. So Jesus, through the curtain of his flesh, hanging, dying on a cross, unveiled the holy of holies so that you and I can go in with confidence to that place that only the priest could go. But here's what I love. Jesus did not simply say, there it is, go on in. He was the sacrifice, he was the curtain, and he was the priest. He was the sacrifice that he offered. He was the curtain that kept kept everybody from getting in. And once he died on the cross, he became the priest. How does that work? Here's how it works. If you are lost, well, let me just give you an example. I had a quick trip to Atlanta Friday. Flew out Friday morning, flew back Friday night. 
And so I'm traveling with someone else. We fly into Atlanta. Someone is picking us up there. And the person picking us up there lives in Atlanta, does the Atlanta airport all the time. And so this is what he said. He said, what you need to do, once you get off the, off the plane, go to the, first, uh, uh, go to the first train, get on the first train, ride it to D, get off that train, go up the escalator, bear to your right. Then uh, when you bear to the right, you'll go down a corridor. Once you go down a corridor, go around that, you'll see some escalators that go down, and I'll be waiting for you there. Well, okay. All right. That's all we had. And his phone number, thankfully. Do you know what would have been much better? If he could have done it, he couldn't. But if he could have said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to meet you right when you get off the plane. I'll just walk you to my car. That's what Jesus did. He didn't say, hey, there's God and there's God's presence and Go on in. No, he says, hey, come with me. I'll walk you into the presence of God. That's what priests do. Uh, That's what priests did in the temple. They went into the very presence of God with the sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice, the curtain, and the priest to usher us in. And so why do we have to deal with that? Because if we don't get that, we will never do the three things Jesus tells us to do. What does he say? Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Hold fast your confession. He says, draw near to God. Hold fast your confession and stir one another up. All right, uh, how do we draw near? Look at this, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do we draw near with a true heart? That means a whole heart. We love to quote Jeremiah 29 11, don't we? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a hope and a future. But if you quote 29 11 without 29 13, you have an incomplete view. Verse 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. We have to draw near with all of ourselves. All of ourselves. We can't hold anything back. We can't say, God, I'm just going to keep this little part for me. No, God takes all or he takes none at all. He doesn't partially save anyone. You come to him with all of yourself or you come to him with none of yourself. There is no partial buy-in to God's plan. And so that's, that, that's how we draw near, with a, with a whole heart, with a sincere heart. Now, herein lies the problem, though. We read this, and and it says, with uh, a true heart, full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Do you know what bothers so many believers? Is what you did before Christ saved you. Any of you ever experienced the playback? Have any of you ever experienced the rewind button where Satan seems to jump inside your head and goes, yeah, if if you're that, then why did you do this? Why did you sin like this? Or sins you've committed since coming to Christ, and you look at those and, and you think, gosh, how could I? How could I have done that? Here it says the same blood that saved you from your sin uh, cleans you up from a, 
an evil conscience. If you look back just one chapter, uh, Hebrews 9, and look at verse 13 and 14, it's another reference back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So he's saying if that worked then, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When you come to God by faith in Christ with all of your heart, he, he washes not only your heart, but he washes your conscience. He no longer remembers your sin. He no longer holds it against you. It's just a few weeks ago, I received a letter in the mail. And it was from some attorney or some court. And it said that I was part of a class action lawsuit. And I thought, well, what have I done now? So I look at it. And it turns out that there was a group called IntelliCorps. And IntelliCorps, is, they do uh, background checks on folks. And evidently, IntelliCorps messed things up. And so if you had your background check done by IntelliCorps during a period of time, they could have erroneously reported things about you. And I thought, well, that's nice, but when did I have my background check done? Well, it was when we were uh, going to have an exchange student with us, the second exchange student that we had. When we were going to have that exchange student, we had to apply through FLAG, and FLAG ran a background check on us. Now, I don't know what it says for FLAG that they went ahead and put the kid with us, but because I went online, entered the code, and discovered some things. Uh, it was about the year... Um, I think it was the year uh, 1998, I think, was a bad year for me. Uh, larceny, um, public disorderly conduct. It was three events in Roebuck, South Carolina. My name, my social security number, and my birth date. And they said, I did all that stuff. And Flag still sent the student to live with us. Uh, so uh, I think Fadi, who lives with us now, is worried, uh, as he should be. Uh, but, but there was that. And you know, it's easy for you and me to laugh about it because it never happened. Like, I never did those things, and I get 2,000 bucks. All right? So they defamed my name for 2,000 bucks. I'm cheap sales. So there you go. All right? But if I had done those things, we wouldn't be laughing, would we? If that had come in the mail and I looked at that list and I remembered that night and I remembered that day in court and I remembered that sin and I remembered how bad I felt, would I be laughing? No. Our sin isn't a laughing matter. It isn't to God. It cost him his son. But when you know Christ, it isn't a matter anymore. He's washed you. He's cleaned you. It is no longer there. Why? 
Are you stiff-arming him? Draw near. Come in. Get close to him. Even after you've sinned, it's the hardest time, isn't it? After you've blown it, it's so hard because you think, God doesn't want me close. I can tell you as a dad, after I've disciplined my kids, I still want them close to me. God does. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Draw near to God, number two, hold fast the confession. This phrase, hold fast, literally means to steer a ship, to steer a ship. It it refers to steering a ship through stormy waters. Ships will encounter storms. It's a given. If you never go through a storm, it's because you've never been in the water. It's because you've stood on dry land all your life and watched all the action in front of you. If you dare, if you dare get out into the deep water, you will go through a storm. If you dare walk with God, if you dare put your neck out, if you dare say, God, I'm in all the way, storms will come. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know what they will look like, but the storms will come. And when the storms come, we have a choice. We can look at the waves and we can watch them beat on the boat and we could think there's no way I can make it or we can hold on to the confession of our faith. What is that? That word confession is a statement, a statement of faith. What is that for the Christian? Here it is, simply put. God, after the fall of Adam and Eve, clearly in Genesis 3 said, I'll make a way. Christ came died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven where he intercedes for us today. He's coming back to get us one day. That's the confession of our faith. And there will be times in your life when you will not feel like saying it, you will not feel like singing it, but you must, and that will steer you through the storms. Amen? It will steer you through. You will hold on to that for dear life. And that is the only way you will navigate what we have navigated this week. There's no other way. Hold fast the confession of our faith. We believe God is who he is, and we believe Jesus is who he is, and we believe God loves us, and he's coming for us, and he's with us now. We must hold fast to that. You see, the disciples had experience in this. Remember the story? They're on the Sea of Galilee. I've been there, been out on the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful sea, absolutely beautiful, more like a lake. It is surrounded by mountains, and what would happen is the wind would blow down from the mountains and just unexpectedly catch a fishing boat. That's what they were in, catch a fishing boat off guard. Whip up the waves, and that boat would be tossed. Now, here's what shows us this was an extreme storm. Most of the guys, or at least half the guys on the boat, were fishermen. I bet they'd been in a storm before, but not one like that. And water was coming into the boat, and they were freaking out. And so Jesus is what? He's asleep in the boat. 
And what do they do? They go wake him up and say, Jesus, we're dying. We're per perishing here in this, in, the, in this boat. And Jesus steps up and he looks at the wind and the waves and he simply says, peace be still. Well, what you may not realize is that for a Jewish person, the ultimate miracle isn't to raise someone from the dead. Strangely enough, the ultimate miracle is to have power over nature. That's the ultimate because only the creator could interrupt nature. And what did the men do? They looked at each other and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They got an inkling, a picture that he was God only when the storm forced them to cry out to him, they got a glimpse. I would say to you that if you're a parent, you're mostly a parent when your kids are in trouble. That's when we kick it into high gear and do our parenting. I would say that when you are a believer, you experience the Father heart of God mostly when you are in trouble. That's when he kicks his fatherness into high gear. If the storm never came up, the disciples never would have looked at one another and said, who is this? If you have suffered, and most of you have, some more than others, you have had those moments in the middle of the storm where you've looked at yourself or at one another and said, where is this peace coming from? How can I have the peace I have now? It's because Jesus, who you presume perhaps to be asleep, wasn't, and he stepped up, and he's stepped out, and he's calmed the storm. You've got to hold fast to your confession of faith. You've got to. If there's ever a time you have to, it's when the waves are crashing. Why? Why do we do it? Look at this. For he who promised is faithful. You don't, you don't hold fast because you've figured it all out. You don't hold fast because you can answer all the questions, dot all the I's, and cross all the T's. You don't hold out based on facts. You don't hold back out based on feelings. You hold out based on a person who is Christ, who is in the boat. I used to lead mission trips with, uh, with teenagers. I was a youth minister for six years and loved it. And our kids kind of miss out on this here. Uh, but when I did youth ministry, our bus was so bad, you had to have more faith to get to where you were going than to do what you were doing. And that is no lie. Anybody in the room can tell you if you were on any of those trips, we prayed our way there and we prayed our way home because of us. We broke down in more places than we went to. And so, so we learned this little song that came back to my mind this week. And I know 45-year-olds sit and sing kids' songs, but this kid's song is just great. 
And we teach it. We go in these inner city uh, areas and we teach this song to these inner city kids. And some of you may know it. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm, smile in the storm, smile in the storm. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm when you're sailing home, sailing, sailing home. Sailing, sailing home with Jesus in your boat. You can smile in the storm when you're sailing home. And then when we replace all those words with motions, and by the end of it, you're just saying the these and the other things, and the kids are all pumped up, and they're excited, and, and you're teaching great theology, aren't you? There's a lot of things you never thought you could ever do unless Jesus gets in the boat with you. A lot of things. You never thought you could ever do unless Jesus is in the boat with you. Hold fast. Hold fast. Even if it's through a kid's song. Hold fast the confession of your faith. And then finally, the writer says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Uh, you know what I love about this word? You can't see it in the English at all. It never should be here. That word in the Greek means to make somebody else mad. To incite, I-N-C-I-T-E. It's only used twice in Scripture, and the other time it means exactly that. They made somebody else mad, and that's what this means. And I got to thinking, how do you do that? Like, How do you make somebody mad, mad enough to do the right thing, and I remember, now I've never played a sport in my life, everybody knows that, but I've heard locker rooms, that's where this happens. So I went looking, and I discovered in 2009, uh, Florida was playing Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma in the national championship, and they were tied at halftime. And Florida was greatly favored, should have been winning. Uh, They're tied at halftime, and uh, Tim Tebow was quarterback at Florida, and he goes into the locker room, and this is what happened. So check the screen out, and this is what happened in that locker room. Does anybody know what he said? They love each other. Do you realize that? Those guys love each other, and he's just screaming at them, and they love each other. Why? He's stirring them up. I don't know to how much love, but good works, in his opinion, is winning that game. And it worked, evidently. They won by 10 points. That's what this means. Stir one another up. You know what it means? That in the family of God, there will be times where you will see a brother or a sister begin to veer off course. And what do you do? You will lovingly, firmly look at them and say, you are off course. And if you keep on your current course, you will shipwreck. That's what the family of God is for. That's why you ought to be in a small group of some kind. You ought to take out your connection card where it says, I want information on a small group, and you ought to be plugged into one. Why? So that you could come together in the context of that small group and lovingly look at one another and say, how have you been doing? Are you being faithful here? The writer of Hebrews says how to do it, not forsaken the assembling of yourselves together. 
Here's the reality. I've had people say to me, I can worship God just as much on the golf course uh, or in my deer stand as I can at church. Hogwash. It's a lie out of the pits of hell. Why? God has created you to need each other. He's made you that way. He has made you to need a brother. He has made you to need a sister. He has made you to need close-knit fellowship with other people. There's value in coming here and worshiping God together. You need that. And it is in that context that you say the hard things to one another. The things that don't leave the room You know what it means? It means if your brother is sinning, you don't go to another brother and say, hey, did you see, did you hear, did you know know what went on? No, no. If it takes pulling your brother and that brother in and the three of you or the four of you get together and you look at that brother and you say, listen, you're not leaving this room until we figure this out and you pull like a Tim Tebow halftime thing, you know, and do whatever it is you got to do, that's what you do. Because you steer him. James says, James in James chapter 4 says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one who is wandering. And when you have done this, you will save his soul from hell. This is huge. Oh, anybody can point the finger. It's easy for me to figure out what you're doing wrong. And it's very easy. Just come to my house. You'll see what I'm doing wrong. But it takes takes love and compassion and conviction to look at somebody and say, I love you so much that I will speak the truth to you even now. More than one occasion, I've sat in my office and looked at people and said, God has not called me to be your friend. He has called me to be your pastor. I'm getting ready to speak to you in ways you will not like, but I must. This also calls in a more formal way for church discipline. Church discipline, you say, Jerry, what is that? Somebody who heads down a course of sin and they will not repent. They will not turn from their sin. In my 13 years here, we've had four people that we have dismissed out of this church for unrepentant sin. Oh, the first thought, I'm sure, is probably sexual. Three of the four were, but one of them was gossip. Gossip will wreck a church quicker than any thing else. There is no place for it. None. None. None at all. Right now, the deacons and I have two cases in front of us. Do not enjoy it. One of the hardest things to ever deal with. But if a church is going to be a New Testament church and preserve as best we can, the fellowship of the body and the message of the gospel. We will at times have to have hard conversations with people who go on in unrepentant sin, ignoring the warning signs all along the way. The goal always to restore. Always. I want to say to you that I was so blessed to observe what John and Kelsey could not see last Sunday when you lifted them up in prayer in this room. 
how you prayed and cried and wept is Hebrews 10 kind of stuff. I got this email this week from a woman who says several things, and then she says, although I've only been attending Grace for a little over a month, I witnessed last Sunday such a sense of family A tremendous empathy for God's children that were broken and hurting. Honestly, it surprised me how personally the church family accepted the news. Please don't misunderstand. I know a great number of your congregation and know them to be wonderful Christian people. Why then was I surprised? I guess when one sees the size of your congregation, one assumes it to be too large to be truly connected. Oh, how wrong I was. I am ashamed to say how wrong. I should never question or underestimate the power of God and how only he can work among those that love him and wish to serve him genuinely. I can truthfully say I've witnessed Emmanuel, God with us, this week in the outpouring of love that has been shown to the Kingsleys and their family and also the members of Grace Community Church as they ministered and cared for one another during this devastating crisis. I'm excited, she goes on to say, to learn more about Grace Community Church. That's Hebrews 10 Church. It's not easy. It takes discipline to go to someone instead of talking about somebody. But that is a confident church in a Christ who died, who rose again, who's coming back. Some of you sit here this morning and perhaps you say, Jerry, I'm lost in my sins. I, I don't know this Jesus like you guys know him and sang to him and about him and I want to know him. How do I? Oh, Romans 10 says that if you call out to him, you'll be saved. We tend to overcomplicate this, but if you're, if you're dying and you call out to him, he'll rescue you. Now, Hebrews 10 says you do it with a whole heart. You do it with a whole heart. You turn from your sin to Christ, trust Christ as your Savior and receive his forgiveness. Oh, you shouldn't go one more, one, more, one more day, one more hour without giving your life to Christ. There are others of you, perhaps God is saying, this is the church family I need to be part of. I've been attending. We need to join. Uh, we're coming to join. Uh, you do as God leads you there. Let's pray.